You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 118th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm so excited to kick off season four with the topic of parenting and our guest, Claire Lerner. Claire is nationally recognized as a child development and parenting expert with more than three decades of experience in education and direct practice. Claire also led the parenting division of zero to three for over 20 years. She's an author of hundreds of parenting resources, including blogs, podcasts, and videos. Her new book is, Why is My Child in Charge? Welcome, Claire, and thank you so much for joining us today to talk about parenting and your unique approach to it. So thanks, Kim. I'm thrilled to be here. Looking forward to a spirited conversation. I'm excited to do it too. So one of my first questions is, why did you decide to write this book when parents already have thousands of parenting resources? It's a really good question and a very fair question. Here's how this unfolded. I work in the trenches every day with families trying to peel back the layers of these complex interactions they have with their kids to really get to the root of why they're having so many power struggles, right? At the end of the day, that's really what's going on that's so vexing to parents and children alike. In the comfort of my office, we would come up with strategies. It would sound great. But in the heat of the moment, in these interactions at home with their kids, things just kept going off the rails. So I started to do home visits so I could actually see how these dynamics unfolded and could then identify really what the pitfalls were for parents, where things went awry that led to outcomes that they were unhappy with and that weren't getting them where they wanted with their children, which was a really to be the loving limit setter that kids need, right? They need limits. We know that limits and boundaries are critically important for their health and safety, but it's very hard for parents to figure out how to do that in a loving way. They tend to see it bifurcated, like they're either loving their child or they're setting limits as if they're two siloed events. And so as I started to watch these interactions unfold and then debrief with parents and ask them, What made it hard in that moment to stick with the limit of having your child get in the car seat when he was obfuscating? Why was it so hard to limit the number of books when you had already read three or four? What was getting triggered in you? And as we went through that reflective process, I identified eight key faulty mindsets that Mm. sent parents down a path that led to these unwanted outcomes for everybody involved. And so I felt that that was additive, that that wasn't something I had read about before. And it really got to the root cause of the problems. It wasn't just five ways to solve a sleep problem or to get your child to sit at the dinner table and so forth. It really got to the obstacle for parents that led to them having trouble with being the parent they wanted to be. I love that, Claire, because it's not about what's wrong with this kid, which is what most parents are trying to figure out. What's wrong with my child? It really requires an introspective process and a look at these mindsets. 
you got to know, I want to know about your eight mindsets and are parents aware of them? Are they conscious or are they buried somewhere where they're really not aware? It varies. Some are more conscious. For example, they are very aware that their child's distress is very triggering to them and that they will pretty much do anything to take everybody out of their misery. And so they often don't stick to the important limits, even though they know they are important because in the moment, their child's distress overrides everything and they are unable to follow through. That mindset that and, and the mindset and mind shift is children's distress when they can't get what they want when they want it is not harmful distress. That's the distress of learning to manage life's frustrations and disappointments. And that in the context of a loving family, setting those limits is helpful to them, not harmful to them. And working through that distress and seeing that they are actually able to survive not getting the extra episode of TV or getting the toy they wanted in Target, surviving that disappointment is what builds the resilience and grit, right? So that mindset, I would say, is a little more apparent. The mindset, I would say, that is the least and maybe the most important. It's very hard. A lot of times people ask me what's the most important. And, you know, we're not going to have time to go into every single mindset. But when you look at the book, you see that they're all very interconnected. And one of the most foundational is this, the mindset that I can and need to control my child. I need to make him behave. I can and need to make him go to sleep or pee or poop on the potty or eat this food or get in this car seat or agree to stay in his room at night. That mindset really undergirds almost everything parents are doing when they first come to see me. What are they doing? They're vexed by their child's lack of cooperation around a certain limit or expectation. And what are they doing? All of their strategies are designed to try and get their child to change their behavior, to agree to get in the car seat, to agree to turn the TV off, right? To agree to eat one more bite at dinner. The problem is, is that and this is the most humbling thing nobody tells you when you become a parent, is that you actually have zero control over your child. They are human beings. What comes out of their mouths, what they do with their bodies is only up to them. The mind shift is that what you do control is the situation and the interaction with your response. It's not Kim, that's it. I've asked you 10 times. If you don't get in the car seat now, there's no treats later or there's no TV later. And then the child starts to melt down and then the parent feels contrite and it becomes a big fat mess, right? With no real problem solving. The mind shift is what can I do in this moment to help my child move along? This is what that would look like. Kim, no. Getting in the car seat, you're not interested in it. It's really hard to make this transition. I totally understand. It's time to go. My job is to get you to school on time and for me to get to work on time. And so you've got two great choices. You can be in charge of your body and get into the car seat however you like. That's one great option. Option two is I'm a helper. And I'll help you get into the car seat that may feel uncomfortable to both of us because maybe you're going to be kicking and screaming and unhappy about it. So I may have to hold you at arm's length, but that's my job to help us move along. So I'm going to give you a whole minute, Kim, to think about what's the best decision for Kim. Is it to do it on your own 
or is it to have mommy be a helper? You decide. And then if they don't do it, you scoop them up. You don't react. You just say to yourself, this is just a difficult moment for her. It's not something to be mad or frustrated about, but it is my job to move us along and not stay in what I call the gray zone of trying everything to get Kim to eventually decide that she is going to get in the car seat. Because often what happens is the kid's like, ah, I don't care about Paw Patrol later this afternoon. And they keep obfuscating. And then where are you? That is where almost all of the frustration and anger lies with parents. And it's that was the most profound, I would say, insight I had was helping parents move from trying to control the child to controlling the situation in a positive way to stay in charge and help kids cope with the many disappointments, frustrations, and transitions they have to make that are often hard for them. It is hard. And society doesn't help because whenever you see a misbehaving child, everybody's looking at the parent and saying, well, do something like the parent can make them stop. It's just interesting. But I like your approach to choices and allowing the child to decide and then following through because what that teaches the child is, I mean what I say, and I love you and I want for this to go peacefully. But if you won't do it that way, I'm going to have to intervene because we are on a schedule and we have somewhere that we have to be. And it's also, Kim, actually more loving. Yeah. Sort of the irony is that parents are often avoiding the limit because they love their child so much they don't want to distress them. But it's when the limit and boundary isn't clear and things go off the rails that parents start to yell and scream and hate on their children, which is actually what's detrimental. It's not detrimental to say, look, I don't expect you to like that I'm limiting book time. It's never going to feel like enough books. Books are amazing, but it's my job to make sure you get to bed on time. So we're sticking to three books. And if you need to be upset about it, that's perfectly fine. That is much more loving than fine. I'll read another book. Now you're up to five books and now she's begging for seven books. And now (laughs) you're getting angry because she's spoiled and it's never enough. And you're thinking, I really need a break. And she's keeping me from having my evening break. So you can see that mind shift that the limits are loving is critical. Yeah, I can see that. And I know that in my generation, parents were less concerned about limiting their child. And they often use some very strong physical behaviors on their part to get their child to do what they want. And it's like the pendulum shift, right? We used to hurt children to get them to do what we want. Now we have abandoned boundaries to show them how much we care about them. And we need to come back to the center. I love that. So your book, Why Is My Child in Charge, is informed by your extensive at-home observations of parents interacting with a child or children under six. So these are young children. That was not my forte. (laughs) Give me teenagers any day, but those young children, I need kids that can talk to me. And sometimes that's tough. I'm wondering how your book is rooted in brain science, because I know it is. What can you tell us about that? Before I respond to that, Kim, one thing I do want to say for your listeners is that, yes, the stories in the book are from my practice, which is largely kids six and under, but I do work with some older children 
And I have had hundreds of parents who have read the book, who have older children as well, who have found it just as applicable. Because what I'm doing in the book is I'm telling stories of what the problem was, what the mindsets that were in place were, how we made mind shifts, and then made a plan that parents could actually implement lovingly so that any reader could imprint their own scenarios onto that process. The story may not be your exact situation, but you can see the pieces of the puzzle and the process, and you can apply that to seven, eight, nine, ten 10-year-olds. It gets a little trickier with teenagers, but a lot of the same rules apply, especially tuning into the mindsets that get triggered, no matter Mm -hmm. you have a two-year-old or you have a 14-year-old. So I just want to put that out there. And there's a lot on my website with vignettes from the book so people can check it out and see if they think it's relevant or not to them. In terms of the brain science, it's rooted deeply in brain science. I had the benefit of working at Zero to Three, a large national nonprofit for over 20 years where my job was to translate the science of early childhood for parents and caregivers. I would say in a nutshell, It is rooted in the science that lets us know that children have very little ability to self-regulate and have impulse control in those very early years. And one of the really tricky things for parents is that if you've got a really clever two or three-year-old who is already talking a blue streak, they're going to be saying things to like, if you sat them down, like you go into a preschool and the teacher's like, do we hit our friends? No, we don't hit friends. Do we take our food away from the table or do we eat at the table? We eat at the table. You know, do we knock other kids magnetile structures down? No, they can repeat the rule to you. And so parents have this false expectation that somehow they can also act on those feelings. And that Delta is really where the problem is, is that parents tend to assign malicious meaning. My child's purposefully working my last nerve. My child's purposefully not cooperating when really no young child is purposefully setting out to misbehave or to work your last nerve. They're struggling, as you said in the beginning, Kim, with a feeling that they are having a hard time managing. Maybe this is a highly sensitive child temperamentally who has a hard time with transitions, who gets triggered more easily into distress when something doesn't go the way they expect. So there's a delta between the expectation the parent has and the child's ability to meet that expectation. So when parents get angry and harsh and punitive, it usually just escalates the child's dysregulation and it doesn't lead to learning. So really, if I, again, had to sort of summarize it, it's really predicated on the brain science that children are not misbehaving on purpose. They need a lot of compassion and empathy and validation and the clear limits. Because I've never met a child who said, mom, you know, I really need to get the rest my mind and body needs. So could you leave the room and stop reading books to me now so I can get that rest? Kids are not going to voluntarily say, oh, I don't need a toy today at Target. I'm done. I was in the middle of my game, but it's okay. Take it away. 
take the screen away. It's really acknowledging that the child is not misbehaving on purpose and they need the limits and boundaries that provide the ability for the child to eventually make good choices, right? When they're finally tired of mom scooping him up and putting him in the car seat without him being able to do it on his own, that's when he says, you know, this isn't working out so well. I still have to get in the car seat, so I might as well do it on my own. That's where the helping them make good choices comes in. But good choices only are made when there's a clear boundary and limit that the child bumps up against that scaffolds that ability to make the good choice. Yeah. You mentioned a situation about temperament where a child is sensitive to transitions. Are there other temperament pieces that you'd like to expand upon? Yes, I will try and be, you know, brevity is not my strong point. I will just put that out there. And temperament is huge. It is such an important variable in understanding what makes children tick, right? So we could have a whole nother conversation about that. But essentially, when I'm putting together the pieces of the puzzle that make up a child, because really, they're very complex beings. And there are so many variables that go into making them who they are and decoding a specific behavior. Some of it's development, right, where they are developmentally. We know three-year-olds are famous for being desperate for control and will go to unbelievable lengths to wield that control, right? Often to their own detriment. Then there's temperament and then there's context. Okay, I'll go back to temperament in a second, but context is all the things that are happening in a child's world that also impact them, like COVID, a new sibling, moving, a loss, all those contextual factors. So we've got development and context temperament is the why of children's behavior. It helps us understand why they respond the way they do, why some kids run into a new situation, excited, eager, no looking back, and other kids are clinging for dear life to their parents. It's why one child, when the parent says, okay, it's time to go, time to go home for dinner from the playground, that child's like, okay, whatever. And another kid is throwing themselves on the ground like a hundred pound wet noodle because they won't budge. Temperament is inborn. It is something we are all born with that is the system through which we experience the world. It's why you can line up 10 kids having a tantrum or who are exposed to the very same stimulus, like coming into a preschool classroom and having a substitute. You watch how those children respond. It's a window into how they're making sense of the world. So you have some kids who are eager. Hi, my name is Jason. And you have another kid who's refusing to walk into the classroom. That's often temperament at work, which is the kids who are wired to be more highly sensitive, who we know now used to be the kids we would call thin-skinned and overly dramatic. We know now that they are not reacting in a big way on purpose. They actually register their experiences in the world more deeply, both emotionally and from a physical sensory perspective. These are kids who often are much more reactive to changes in their environment, to temperature, to how clothes feel, to how foods look to how they register sounds in their world and also the intensity with which they react to. For example, I have a couple girls I'm working with now who freak out when their moms have their hair up and not down the way they like it, or when the potato is too close to the chicken on their plate, or grandma picks them up from preschool instead of expecting dad who posts to come. The temperament piece is huge because it helps you understand why they are behaving the way they're behaving and that they're not doing it on purpose. 
you wouldn't get punitive and harsh. Like what's wrong with you? I'm here. What's the big deal? Just escalating the interaction. It might look like this. Josie, I know you were expecting grandma and it's really uncomfortable to you that daddy is here. I know it's really hard when something happened you don't expect. I totally get that. It is time to go. Would you like to get in the car yourself or should I be a helper? She's now freaking out. He picks her up lovingly. He straps her in and he moves on. He talks about what's going on outside, what they may do when they get home. He signals to her, I'm here for you. I'm your rock. I know this is a difficult moment. I'm not mad or angry. I'm very compassionate, but I'm also going to help us move on. That's the importance of understanding temperament. I think it also can explain for parents how, well, my one child was so easy and this child just causes me so much grief. It often can be attributed to temperament. In choice theory, we talk about what is their need strength profile. So we look at five basic needs and depending on what the strong need is in the child that will inform temperament or maybe temperament informs the needs that are strong. I like looking at that piece because it does talk about kids as individuals with their own needs and their own personality, their own way of interacting with the world. And you have to match your parenting interventions with the child's particular preference. Well, also, I would say that it's like when you go to see the doctor for a problem, if they miss an important piece of the puzzle, like they forget to ask you what you eat, and it turns out that you're reacting to something you're ingesting, you're never going to problem solve or come up with a solution that is most effective. It's the same thing with kids. If you don't dig deep to figure out what are all the pieces of the puzzle, including what's his temperament, it's going to be very hard to come up with responses that actually do what we're angling for, which is to be empathic and validating and supportive while also guiding your child to move forward, which is our job. Right. You talk a little bit about shifting mindsets in the moment when a child is acting in a confusing and a challenging way. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I'm so glad you asked about that because that's often the biggest obstacle is that parents, when they absorb it and they get it and they are aware that these mindsets are at work and they're trying to move forward with sort of using this two choices, this two great choices strategy, then reality hits. And in the moment, the trigger still overrides their ability to think. Here's the strategy I find most helpful to parents. If it's not life or death, like you don't have a child, you know, running into the middle of the street. This is what it looks and sounds like. My child is refusing to hand over the iPad after screen time is supposed to be done and she's obfuscating. So it might look like this. I see. I've asked you to hand back the screen because time is up. I see you're having a really hard time following that direction. I'm going to take a mommy moment to figure out how we're going to solve this problem. So you just sportscast, you just state what is in front of you. It's time to stay in bed. I see you're having a hard time following that direction. 
I'm going to take a mommy minute to think about how I'm going to help us solve this problem. You need to give yourself some time to think it through so you don't go down that knee-jerk path of threatening, cajoling, bribing, all those things parents do to try and get the child to change their mind. So now I'm thinking, okay, Matilda's a human being. I actually can't like make her agree to give that iPad back. I can't like metaphysically mind meld with her and make her agree to do that. So what are the two great choices? And by the way, I do this out loud. So in the ideal world, I sort of turn away from Matilda and say, let's see, what are Matilda's two great choices then? So she's a human being, so I can't make her give it back. So what might the two great choices be? Well, I guess one is Matilda could choose to give it back and then she would get her next screen time because that's our rule, that when time is done, we hand the screen back. So that's one great option for Matilda. The other option is Matilda doesn't give it back and then I need to take it, which may feel really uncomfortable. I may kind of have to peel it out out of her hands. She may be really upset, but since the iPad going away is a have to, then that would be option two. So then I would turn back around. Now, by the way, a lot of kids at this point have just handed back the iPad because they're listening to you and they're just so freaked out by this so monologue you're engaged in and not doing your typical yelling, angry, threatening that they just hand it over. But if she hasn't, you turn around and you say, this is a really big choice, Matilda. I'm going to give you a whole minute to think about what's the best choice for Matilda. So remember, the iPad going away is a have to. That is going to happen no matter what. What's amazing is the choice is up to you. You can choose to give it back and get your screen time. You have to decide, is that the better choice for Matilda? Or is it to not give it back and mommy takes it back and there's no screen time later because that's our rule. We have to give it back. So you really emphasize that the child is the decider. You're just implementing the outcome of it. But I find that you have to take a minute to think about what do I control in this situation and what don't I control and avoid that path of trying to change your child's mind or behavior. And that gives you time to really think about what the two great choices are. And remember, the two great choices are option one is always they choose to cooperate. Option two is the end game some way to help move the situation along that I've given in many other examples. That I find to be the best solution. I love those concrete examples and the dialogue that you have with yourself in front of your children. It really gives them insight into how your mind is working and allows them the time and space they need to really look at which choice is my best choice. That's a great example. Thanks for that, Claire. What would you say to the parents who struggle with their child's disappointments or failures, where it's just almost unbearable for the parent to see and they want to step in and handle that? What would you tell them? What I would say is that when I have those conversations with parents and ask them what they're thinking when they intervene, the child's struggling with something and they go in to rescue Often what I hear from parents, and actually I can really relate to this, it's exactly how I felt and one of the major pitfalls that I struggled with as a parent when my kids were younger was they are worried about their child not feeling good about themselves, that like they're going to feel like a failure and incompetent, and that's going to erode their self-confidence. And what I help them see is that actually it's in the rescuing that you're doing exactly what you're trying to avoid. Because when you go into rescue, you are inadvertently communicating to your child 
One that you don't think he's capable of learning to solve that problem himself. And two, that only you can solve his problem. So he becomes dependent on that. Every time he faces a challenge, there's that innate panic calling for the parent and expecting the parent to take him out of his discomfort. What the gift is, is to get comfortable with your child's comfort and to recognize that that space between learning a new skill and mastery is a place of discomfort for all of us. And it's where the growth is. If we never experience the discomfort and we just stay in our safe places, we never grow. If you avoid ever leaving your dead-end job because of anxiety about the fear of performing at a new job, you're going to stay in that stuck place. So when I give parents analogies like that, they are able to clearly see that the gift is to be able to say to this child, I know puzzles are really hard. I totally get it. And you're getting really frustrated. I totally see that. I remember doing puzzles and feeling that same way. Would you like to take a break? Would you like to get some ideas for how you might figure this out? And you give them that space. That's very important. You run into like, oh, let's figure it out. It's very overwhelming to the child in that dysregulated moment. And they usually get more defensive. So it's very important to say, do you need a break? Or would you like me to help you think it through? When they're open to you helping them think it through, it's very important to ask permission. Otherwise, the child often feels intruded on, especially the highly sensitive reactive kids. Almost always when you ask for permission, they're eager for it. And then you act like a facilitator or a coach. So it's not like, oh, here, this piece goes here, honey. See, this piece goes here. It's like, hmm, what shape is this? Oh, where do you see that shape? Should we try different spaces to see which one fits and be a detective and see if we can find it? So you partner with the child to help them be the master of the challenge. And that's what builds what everybody is talking about. Grit and resilience. What is grit and resilience? It's bumping up against a challenge, not panicking, being able to say to yourself, I've been here before. I know how to solve problems. I'm going to take my deep breaths and I'm going to think through what are the different strategies I can take to solve this problem. And that is one of the greatest gifts you give to your kids. I think that's right. And from a personal perspective, I still frustrate when I do puzzles. I think if I tried to do that with my grandkids, they would be helping me instead of me helping them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. That's a good problem to have. Right. So what insight or message would you most like parents to take away from reading your book, Why Is My Child in Charge? I love that title, by the way. (laughs) Well, I wish I could take credit. One of my very dearest friends just got to the heart of it by reading some of the book and figuring out what problem I was trying to solve. And it's sort of the answer to your question, which is, I guess I would say that my message is that there is a way to be a really strong, loving limit setter, really positive way. Because like I said, when most parents come to me, the space they're in is that they've bifurcated this. They feel like setting those limits and being in charge is mean or authoritarian. They really have a mistaken belief about how to be and what it means to be a really good, strong leader in your family. 
once parents feel that they practice it with one small interaction with their kids and they experience the power of it to stay present, calm, loving rock that your child needs you to be and be able to hold their upset and not try and talk them out of their feelings or make it all better or convince them or cheerlead them out of their feelings, but you're able to sit with it and still implement the thing that they are really fighting against. It's life-changing for families. I get emails every day from clients who I get to work with more intensively, obviously, like really in the weeds on these situations, or even people read the book and sent me their vignettes of when they finally made this mind shift and they were able to stick with something that felt so difficult and so triggering. The outcomes were so deeply beneficial you have the power to change this, to not have a power struggle. Like the dream can be a reality and it leads to all the things you read in the other books. You can be present, you can be loving, you can see your child and also be able to stay in charge in the way they need you to be. Excellent. And Claire, thank you so much. I just want to ask if you have anything you'd like to add that we haven't already talked about. I don't think so. I think we really covered the main points. There is a ton of content on my website on pretty much all the behaviors and challenges that come up in the early years. Like I said, it's still applicable to older kids in many ways. And of course, there's the book and I have a free newsletter. There are many ways to delve into this content more deeply, but I feel like you really got to the heart of it and that we can leave it there which is amazing for me to say. I rarely (laughs) say, let's leave it there. (laughs) Me too. I understand that. So could you give your URL for your website for people that are interested? And also, I just want to check that your book is available wherever books are sold. Book is everywhere. And my URL is just learnerchilddevelopment.com. If you Google Claire Learner, it will come up. There is a potter who also has my name, but it'll be readily apparent. And on my website, you can easily sign up for the free newsletter. It's sort of one-stop shopping once you're at the website. Okay. I'll put that in the show notes for people. I'm just curious, do you have any new projects on the horizon or anything coming up where people might be able to listen to you or see you? Actually, my newsletter does include places where I'm talking, largely Zoom workshops. I do do a lot of workshops that are open to anybody, and I have them on my website as well. My latest newsletter, which you can access easily from my website, has my most recent. And I also have a place on my website where you can access recordings. I have a whole presentation I did on highly sensitive children, which is very popular, that's on my website under the book tab, events and recordings. And that has been very helpful to many families because I go in deep for like a full hour on highly sensitive children. And I have a lot of blogs on highly sensitive children as well. So that has become an area of interest in something that I'm doing more and more writing about. There may be a book in my future on that because often the kids who have the greatest challenges are the kids who are highly sensitive. So in my practice, I would say 80 to 90 percent of the kids who I work with or who families I work with are highly sensitive. So yes, if you follow me on Instagram or any of those vehicles, you'll see on my website, you will see where I'm speaking and how to participate. 
Would you say the best way to reach you is through your website? I would say website, Instagram, reading the newsletter, those will keep you very up to date. All right. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me and our audience today. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule and could be spending your time doing any number of things. And I'm so happy you chose to spend it with us today. Thanks so much, Claire. That was my pleasure, Kim. Thanks for having me. Of course, anytime. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Regina Fike, who is a parent extraordinaire and also a foster parent and adoptive parent. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you next time. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.